0: OK, so what's the plan? How do we do this? Uh, it's just a free for all. You just shout what you want, uh, your feelings about Trump. Yeah. Um, if you can do it quite high pitched and nasal, uh, that's so much the better. I have been uh, practicing for a role on NBC.
1: So. If you could if you could call people uh, champ or kiddo, <laughs> that would be that would be very good. Um, Although I, I have to say
2: it, th- th- Trump has done one thing that really did make me like him which is, did you see that story about how he has this red button? Yes, that's that he, amazing. When someone comes in, he says, that was that was fantastic. No, tell that us. Actually, actually
3: let's start with that. Tell us. Okay.
2: So t- Trump apparently has this red button on his desk in the White House. And when someone new comes in, he says something like, whatever I do, don't let me press that button. And he doesn't explain why. He just says, is- just make sure I don't touch it and then I'll move it to some place. And then while he's talking to the person almost like unconsciously it like, it seemed like it's unconscious. He draws it towards him and then appears to be surprised that it's near him and pushes it away again. And in order to make the person nervous and then all of a sudden Seemingly spontaneously, he presses the button and expresses great alarm. And then the person doesn't know what's happening. And then, like a minute later, someone enters carrying a Diet Coke on a silver tray,
3: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> which is magnificent because it is a perfect representation of the abuse of power Trump is prone to versus the image everyone has of it.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's you know I mean? right. Like yeah.
2: everybody thinks he's going to press the red button, all his critics think he's going to press the red button. And destroy the world, and instead it's just a joke. It's all just a farce. It's yeah. just a, it's just a complete joke. But
3: also, but also, the, jokes on them. He
2: works them up. He provokes them in uh, the most trivial ways, and he presses their button. I mean, literally, he what his he presidency is about is pressing people's buttons.
3: It's also the, the um, you know there is a degree of uh, sadistic. I mean, mild kind of sadism in there as well, tormenting absolutely. the person yeah. who's in the Oval Office with the most powerful man in the world. Yeah. And um, playing up to their preconceptions, I mean, it's funny, but at yeah. the same time, there is a kind of he, the reality TV sadism, that kind of soft sadism totally. of reality TV that he relishes so much. Yeah. It
2: unconsciously th- reveals the worst thing about him, which is not actually the abuse of power, but the total banalization of the power he possesses. Like he just has nothing in the end. He wants it just so he can kind of sadistically toy with people and draw all public attention upon him, but he doesn't actually have
3: a political project.
2: He doesn't have a project that he's ready to blow up the world for the way the neocons did.
3: Are you ready to blow up the world for your political project, Alex?
2: Yeah, no, you know, uh, life is the natural setting of consciousness, as Hegel says, so I don't want to blow up the world.
3: Mm, I'm not happy with that answer.
2: Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Didn't think you <it> would
0: be. <laughs> Hello, friends. It's Alpha Bunga Bunga, the Global Politics Podcast. At the end of the end of history. We're recording this on Monday, the 19th of October. This is coming out to patrons early. So if you're one of the few chosen people, uh, you're hearing this on Tuesday, the 20th already. My name is Alex Hochuli in Sao Paulo, Brazil. This podcast is also Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare, who are in the UK. Hey. Hey, what's up? Hello. Uh, How's it going? Yeah, very well, very well. Uh, Rainy, rainy is how it's going. Uh, And today we're delighted to have back our pal Alex Gurevich for this U.S. election preview. Hello, Alex. Hello. Uh, So just briefly for those who don't know him, uh, how dare you? How could you not know him? Alex is associate professor of political science at Brown University, uh, and we're here to talk with him about the most important election ever, uh, at least since the last one. What we're not going to do here is try to be fully exhaustive. Uh, Apparently, a lot of people are interested in uh, this election in a minor declining power known as the United States of America. And consequently, there's quite a lot of election commentary covering various angles. So we're not going to be going into, for example, a lot of polling data or anything like that. What we want to do here is provide an overview for people both inside and outside the country on what the key critical left wing angles are to understand here. And maybe uh, at the end of all of this, uh, if you still want to go and vote, you know, fine, fair enough, go ahead and do that. (laughs) And we'll also, I should highlight, be doing a post-election episode, uh, which will be coming out in the week of the election, which uh, there we will be taking a deeper look into the consequences of the election, any kind of realignments in process uh, as well, um, and maybe a retrospective on the Trump presidency, if uh, if such a thing is apposite at that moment. All right, so without further ado, uh, Alex, I would like to bring you in. Is this actually an important election? Um, everyone tries to claim that this is the most important one since, I mean, do you buy that it's an important election? And if so, I mean, how do you measure that in, in magnitude in comparison to, to recent elections? How pivotal is it? I do think it's an important election. I
2: don't think it's like a more important election than previous elections, and I've lived through enough elections to immediately be suspicious when people say this is the most important election ever. Uh, This was a big part of the election of 2008, I recall, uh, around the kind of collective liberal and left-wing hysteria around W. I mean, they said it in 2004 as well, but lost. And then with Obama. And the thing we most learned about Obama once he was elected was that uh, nothing changed. It was you know eight years of things basically staying the same normalization of the essential features of the war on terror normalization of the neoliberal economy you know increasing inequality no significant or dramatic shifts in anything on the surface um it was really the trump presidency that that trump winning that was the first thing that seemed to kind of show cracks in the ice of of the political structure and uh there's a way in which maybe that election was more important than this one because I think this one is just exposing and intensifying what that one did, which is not that it was a revolutionary break or some dramatic break with the past or something like that, but it exposed the kind of incredible disintegration of political authority. I mean, it's truly astonishing that, uh, that Trump won and it was he I mean it's astonishing that he won the primaries it's astonishing that he won the election uh, and he won precisely because all of the old political the dominant political structures were held in sufficient contempt by a sufficient number of people that someone with no real roots in the Republican Party could win the Republican primary and then could defeat the most establishment candidate ever fielded uh, uh, in in decades by either by either side right I mean Hillary was, above all, uh, I think, loathed as just the kind of last remaining or one of the remaining representatives of of, uh, status quo politics. And so it exposed things that I think had been happening precisely because nothing really fundamentally changed for a lot of people or got fundamentally worse under Obama. That was then brought to head and exposed during the election.
3: Is, it, and, is she more, yeah. Is was he, so I guess very directly, is Biden, I mean, is Biden really less of an establishment candidate and is perhaps the, um, I mean, I know, you know, obviously Biden is more, um, you know, according to the polls, he's more liked than she is, but is yeah. he only less of an establishment candidate and is, is some of the difference in that data made up is just kind of um, essentially misogyny?
2: I, I, I'm sure there was um, some misogyny, but the difference between 2016 and now is that Trump was new. Um, he, a vote for Trump could be seen as, for some segment of the population, as just a rejection of the present, a total rejection no, no, sure. of but the I mean, political parties.
3: But is Biden, is Biden different from Hillary in being less of an establishment candidate?
2: Um, no, He's, he, he is another establishment candidate. Uh, there, there's no question about that, but I think he's also, what's different about that fact this time around is that you just have an, uh, a number of things that have happened such that, um, the fact of him being establishment candidate is rather more concealed. I mean, I can think of no election in decades where the leading candidate, was subject to less negative public attention. And when the press was, I mean, the press is so unbelievably in the tank for Biden. It's really an astonishing thing. I've been screen capping CNN and Washington Post and New York Times headlines over the past few weeks just because it's kind of extraordinary. The the mainstream press, anything to the left of Fox News has pretty much, I think given up any pretense of being sort of neutral reporters of the facts (laughs) Um, and just gone completely in the tank for Biden. And coronavirus has been the perfect excuse to completely, you know, to do as to retreat as much from the public face, you know, from public exposure while still running a campaign. Yeah. And so he's, he, he, he is not running. It's allowed him to not run as anything positive positive. As so anything actually, in particular. Yeah. And so the fact that he represents the establishment is sort of disintegrated into just the fact that he represents, you know, normal normal of some sort, but also just that he's not Donald Trump. And so that Alex, fact I think is what it conceals the establishment character as a candidate. Sorry, see.
1: Yeah, no, no, just just to, to kind of build on this. So what has what has been the the Democrats' pitch, not just with Biden, but as a party? I mean, has there been a drift leftwards? And if, if so, where? Or is it just, as you said, is this just an, basically a negative appeal that no scrutiny and not Trump? I mean, the difficulty with saying what the Democrats' pitch is, is that it's such a
2: fragmented political system, and especially fragmented now, that there's the kind of headline pitch by the Democratic Party. And then there's whatever pitch you're getting locally at the local level, um, which one never really knows unless you're there and following it. But the headline pitch is basically the Republicans are the party of Trump. And we are an alternative to that. That's the headline pitch really. And then there have been bits and we're the party of reason and science and, um, Maybe in part, they'll kind of seize on other things like we are the kind of progressive and enlightened party. So they really have seized on kind of being, you know, enlightened when it comes to all the major culture wars, issues like gender, race. They've You know, they kind of seized symbolically on the protests over the summer and subsequently. But that's all sucked. That's all kind of assimilated upwards into their um, they really only define that negatively. They don't. There's no real positive content to it. They're just saying, "Look, we're not like Trump because we're enlightened. We know how to use words in a non-insulting way. We know how to address people in the proper, using the proper codes, the proper kind of language. You know, we know the rules of the game. We know the rules of the game. Well, where it's, I mean, the election is in a way really primarily a, 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 a it's a fight over who's going to set. The rules of elite discourse.
3: Could you maybe? But you, could you, could you just one other thing. Sorry, could go you ahead. tell us, Alex, about the? I suppose so. How is it going down among the professional middle classes of which obviously you are one um, mm. in the kind of academy, um, and why more? You know, further afield. I mean, is it kind of the? Is it purely? Um, the desperate kind of, uh, anti-fascist vote that is mobilizing them, or is there a genuine belief that there is something deeper in the Democrats platform in what the Democrats will be able to do in power? Um, what is, what is the essentially like, how is the message going down? So aside from the content of right. the message, how is it being yeah. absorbed by, um, right. particular social strata?
2: I, I think that's very difficult to say. Um, because, figuring out how enthusiastic people are, there is polling data on it. And basically it shows that even the most committed Biden voters have the least amount of enthusiasm for him of any kind of recent body of likely voters for either side. So there were more enthusiastic voters for Hillary Clinton. I mean, I can say not just on that polling data, but just among the people that I know, there were vastly more people who were enthusiastic about voting for Hillary Clinton than for Joe Biden, and um, this has why been is that? because they can tell he doesn't stand for anything. I mean, there's just absolutely With 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 Hillary, there was a lot of excitement for the fact that she was a woman. She also was a kind of you know there were admirable features to her. She was an ext- incredibly determined and confident person who was kind of able to stand and represent herself in a clear and confident way. And she stood as a kind of breakthrough. There is absolutely nothing new or novel or vital about the Biden candidacy. There's just nothing there. And um, everybody I think can tell he's an accident, right? I mean, I think a lot of people thought that the reason that Obama picked him as vice president was so as not to anoint a successor because they thought he would just be too old And then they didn't think he was going to come out of the primary battle. And they know that he was basically the the main reason that the lie about Biden being the alternative to Trump is that the main reason that Biden exists is because the Democrats didn't want Sanders to be their candidate. And they Mm -hmm. all congealed around Biden for the central purpose of blocking Sanders. And they did it decisively right Mm -hmm. before Super Tuesday. And so now they're stuck with the person that they think, but the whole point is he's not actually the candidate you would want to field to represent the democratic party. In fact, he says that. He famously said, I'm just a transition candidate. So there's very little enthusiasm. I mean, I can say this within the labor movement. I happened to be giving an address on strikes to this sort of group of um, union members uh, sometime in late February. Uh,
3: explaining explaining the ethics of the strike why 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 strikes are good in political theory
2: why, why strikes are good, not just in political theory, but in reality. <laughs> but they but and, and I was talking to someone who, you know, she was a kind of liberal labor movement person. And she, I asked her, did you, you know, I assume you voted for Sanders. She's like, no, I voted for Biden. I was like, really? And she said, well, I think he's the only one who can do de- it to can defeat Trump. And I said, all right, fine. You know, we can discuss that. And she says, but boy, I just don't like him. And then that's just been the experience through and through. I have not, you know, I canvassed in New Hampshire, I was in South Carolina, everyone I spoke to, anyone who was a Biden voter, they were just so unenthusiastic. And so it's a total resignation. And I think it bodes... um, I mean, I don't know if the word's poorly, but it, it, it is, I think it means that I think Biden's very likely to win. And I think it's going to mean that we're going to have something like Macron's presidency, where someone is elected mm. without any substantive mandate whatsoever. And therefore, they're just going to reproduce the absence of political authority because they were elected only because people didn't want the other guy. He's the purest distillation of what the Democrats have become over the 30 years, which is we are nothing in particular. We're just the lesser evil. And um, that used to have a little bit more substance. Maybe it was vestigial substance. Maybe it was just cultural substance. You know, in Obama or Hillary, there was just that sense that you're kind of bringing in something new, breaking a barrier that we all agree with. Whereas with Biden, there's just absolutely no barrier broken, no forward step taken. It's just Mm. we're not the other guy.
1: So, and I, I think I just, that's
2: going to be a problem
1: for any attempt to govern. Yeah, I mean, so I, I wanted the to ask... of nothing in particular, the Democratic Party. But um, yeah, Alex, sorry, you had a, You had a question. No, I, mean, I, I just I, wanted
0: to ask about because, I mean, you mentioned obviously the US system being fragmented. You know, I guess it's also hollowed out. Um, I mean, I guess US political parties have always been more hollow than kind of their European equivalents. But I mean, does Biden, or for that matter, you know, Hillary Clinton, as the as we were making the comparison just now, have any kind of social base in
1: any describable sense? I mean,
3: yeah, labor. Just
1: just to just to jump onto that question as well, because I was going to ask something quite similar. There must be a certain sort of, there must be some social group who have some high level of support, or at least some enthusiasm for Biden, surely, uh, or maybe there maybe there isn't. I mean, his basis is surely the professional classes.
2: It's definitely the professional class. Um, you know, that's where he's de- in the sense that he's going to get a lot of votes from many different groups of people because the Democratic Party is a catch-all party that is basically kind of U-shaped. It includes the super rich, you know, the kind of progressive and enlightened financiers and tech millionaires and billionaires way on one end of the spectrum. and Then it goes down kind of to the professional classes, then over to The the kind of racially diverse and complex working class who vote for him vote for the Democrats and will vote for Biden, but not on the basis of being a working class constituency. You know, it's sort of a rainbow coalition, kind of um, you know many different identities included as identities rather than as some kind of working class party. And and many not voting. So they'll vote for him. Yeah,
0: and many not many abstaining from voting altogether. I suppose. Um, I don't know what. Yeah, uh, although I should I should say
2: actually one thing about this, which is which is important and really hasn't been discussed, which is that actually it looks like Trump retains his slightly higher approval ratings among African-Americans and Latinos relative to previous Republicans. But it looks like he's doing worse in states he won because whites, in particular, some of these uneducated white people who voted for him last time have shifted over to Biden. So. Although everybody wanted to take Trump as the sign that white supremacy had kind of returned to America and was vital and strong and resurgent. The irony is Biden, for his part, has actually added a bunch of kind of nationalist, um, you know, rhetoric and stuff on China and trade deals, When especially when he's stumping in the Midwest. And he's pulled back some white voters. So if he wins, and Richard I mean, this Spencer. Has to, Yeah, I mean, it's all this is so this is what's so weird is that statements that Biden makes are there are many statements Biden has made about China trade, America production tariffs over the past six months that had Trump said them, people would have been just wildly up in arms about how crazy nationalist and fascist it was. Biden does it. And it may be the reason that he's pulled some white votes back at least according to recent polls. And he's clearly improved his standing by about four percentage points in various places. And, uh, and it's mainly with white people, white voters. Um, and, uh, and people say this is a good thing, you know? So So, it's, 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 that's the change in his social base is actually that. Yeah.
3: So if the Democrats are, if it is kind of as, um, as vacuous, as you say, what is the Republicans pitch?
1: Yeah, this is a good good question, right? Because if last time it was drain the swamp, this time, you know, surely the voters can say, you know, what have you been doing for four years? How come the swamp still needs to be drained? Well, the Republicans don't know what their pitch is because
2: <clears throat> the problem is Trump has transformed the Republican Party. I mean, there's a sense in which he hasn't changed anything about the Republican Party. There's always been raving, you know, racism. And crude masculinity all over the Republican Party. It's it's not particularly new feature of a party that had to win elections, despite representing a very small minority um, of class interests. And so it always had a, a particular kind of right wing populism that it had to to had, had to use to win elections, um, um, especially to supplement anti. Especially, I think, as anti communism was less effective. Um, Uh, But the problem this time around is that Trump looks like a liability. It's possible that the Democrats will win not just the presidency, but they'll take the Senate and the House. Oh, and they already have the House, um, but they'll take the Senate as well. And the Republicans don't know what to do because on the one hand, there's a way in which Trump has been one of the most orthodox Republican presidents ever. I mean, the core, the most successful thing he has done is dramatic tax cuts uh, redistribution of wealth upwards and deregulation and institutionalized republican party interests in the judiciary i mean he's appointed far more people to the bench than george w bush ever did he's now going to have appointed more um justices to the supreme court he's been enormously successful at the core political project of the republican party which is to kind of you know Rule undemocratically within the confines of the nominally democratic features of the American state.
3: What's the so? But you know, I mean, I take that point, Alex, about their fundamental confusion and how they're trapped. But like, what you know, what is it that? What's on the billboards? What's on the on the TV ads? On the Facebook ads? What's the you know? What's the what are they trying to pitch? Even if and how do right. you tell that they're confused?
1: Yeah, because so, I mean, paint, paint, yeah. paint us a bit of a picture of the uh, targeted ads that I'm sure you're receiving with the full speed Trumpism um, banners or what are the, you know, I guess, what are the, what are the, the phrases or the, the key ideas, so it's, the image right. of America they're trying to sell? Um,
2: so it's law and order is a big part of it, that the, that the, that the Democratic Party is a party of crime, protest, disorder, um, you know, Portland, that kind of thing. Um, Another thing is that they're the party that will lead the recovery Um, and more of that want to get things done, actually. I mean, I think that Pelosi's management of the bailout has been, um, uh, it's hard to know how that will register, but they've seized on it recently to kind of try to claim the ground on the economy because remarkably, Trump still polls better than Biden on the economy and on the handling of the economy, (laughs) which is truly extraordinary. And I think really is a testament above all to the total ideological um, desiccation of the Democratic party I mean the thought that some a party led by trump that um, engaged in such massive tax cuts and then engaged in just an extraordinarily lopsided bailout um, which um, you know led to massive increase in wealth for the top tiers of the economy and in you know, real tightening of the screws to most of the working class.
3: Well, you're saying the Trump bucks didn't work.
2: Oh, my God. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's really extraordinary that, that, that the Democrats have struggled at all to articulate what's so screwed up about the, the Republican Party. And I think that really owes itself to just how deeply sort of Clinton, the, the new Democrats and Clinton era neoliberalism, really um, how much it just eroded away and ate away at not just the the kind of ideological content of even a, of a kind of, I don't know, welfare state, new deal liberalism, but also the politics behind it. You know, the fact that you need mass collective action to win these, these, these concessions, they just don't know how to talk about it. The best Biden's been able to do is talk about a K shaped recovery, which, you know, what the fuck is that? Right. I mean, it, it, I mean, everybody knows what it means. If if you've already been paying attention and know the graphs it's a reference to, then you know what it means, but it's, it's a, to- it's, it's totally inarticulate. So
0: the, the, the Republicans yeah, it's are, a, it's not a, a ketamine shaped Republic uh, recovery. Which yeah. I mean, right. It could I mean, totally, mean, You know, you just put it in,
2: it's an umlaut shaped, it's an enya <laughs> shaped, you know, it's a uh, accent, a like what the, you know, what is, you might as well just speak another language. So the, so the Republicans are able to basically pitch law and order, the economy shockingly enough, you know, given the kind of recovery from the initial COVID recession um, and that they have been enormously successful at doing what they said they were going to do. I mean, they did do tax cuts and court appointments and, um, uh, and the, you know, the culture wars. So, Mm. um, I mean, these things get folded into each other, but if you put economy plus um, the law and order and the protests Plus, culture wars, you know, they're teaching Marxism and to hate America in our schools. Um, you know, it's kind of true. <laughs> uh, for one, th- that aspect is kind of true. Well, they're uh, not it, teaching
3: Marxism, though, are they?
2: Not Marxism, but they are teaching to hate America, you know. So <laughs> that so that's, that's that kind of self-loathing. Like, nobody really wants to vote for the party of self-loathing um and um what's more self-loathing than not even being sure that you should be campaigning in public at all you know so so um there's enough there that there's no reason why they couldn't win um uh
0: and so uh, so, i mean that's their pitch yeah. So just here's the thing, Alex, I mean, for me, it's, uh, it's kind of seems uh, something which is contradictory. On the one hand, you have the Republicans who seem uh, whose messaging is more forthright, it's probably clearer and, and kind of easier to yeah. grasp what they're about. The Democrats yeah. always seem befuddled, uh, seem to try to triangulate their way out of everything. Uh, you don't know what mm. they stand for. I think anybody could kind of grasp this, even if you're not in the United States, I think everybody could kind yeah. of grasp this. Um, and, you know, the Democrats are known for being weak for trying to uh, compromise where there's none to be found, whereas the Republicans just ram through what they want. Uh, it seems like the Republicans know how to do politics and the Democrats basically don't. At the same time, actually, it seems like the Democrats are a far more coherent party, not that they're especially coherent, but it seems more coherent than the Republicans. Something that we discuss with um with Julius Krein uh, on a previous Mm. episode about a month or two ago was precisely, I mean, the weakness of conservatism in general and specifically the Republican party and what an incoherent coalition it is between kind of old industry, like old industry wealth backing it, backing the party as donors um, and a base, Mm. which is probably more white and more plebeian probably now than, than the, uh, than the Democrats is. So in a way, The Democrats seem a more coherent party than than the Republicans, for for all that the Republicans come across more forcefully and more forthright in in their messaging. Is that right? I mean, is that you? I I don't think I agree. I mean, let me put it, I don't think
2: I agree with that. I mean, or at least if the Democrats are more coherent, it's not quite for the reasons that Julius gives. I remember when he said that, I remember thinking this was somebody who saying that only because they sort of had an idea of the Republican Party being able to be more coherent than it was and therefore falling short of some idea of coherence. So I, I think that the, the Repo- there's a way in which the, both parties are just structurally incoherent. And that's because they're both parties of capital who need to win elections by winning majorities, but capital's always a minority. So And that's just always been true of them. I mean, that's been true since the end of the Civil War. Um, and the, when, you know, just the standard contradictions of democratic politics in a capitalist society emerged, and there's ways in which they've been much more coherent in the past because unified by some clearer and more substantive kind of ideology that could establish, you know, competing conceptions of, you know, collective interests. But, but the, what's, what's, Always given what gave the Republican Party its coherence fundamentally was its anti-communism in the 20th century. And that's what's missing. And that was also kind of what gave the Democratic Party uh, a kind of coherence. But it was always um, a much more positive image of that coherence. So it was that it was the, the party of everyone not just capital and to be the party of everyone it it included capital in that right so it was never a labor party so it was never a, a party of one part of society professing to represent the whole it was the party of the nation as a whole the party that would save cap the nation from capitalism or really save capitalism from itself and that gave it a purpose so long as there was some kind of threat to capitalism but there was always a bit more positive content to the democratic party that's that's disappeared with the kind of general decline of the left, but it was always just, I think it was always just as incoherent a party as the Republican party for the, for that same basic reason was it's sectional and Mm -hmm. catch all. I mean, was it, I guess, I guess a party party of the white South and the labor movement mm, in the North like that, you know?
0: Yeah, I guess it just, uh, but maybe what I was getting at is that for, you know, insofar as we can speak of coherence of the Democrats, it's just that they are now just an absolute status quoist party representing the interests of Uh the rising sections of capital and for the professional middle class. I mean, right. But that's, but its problem is precisely that it
2: knows it's supposed to be representing more than the professional class, which means it has to represent some segments of the working class, but it's the working class that has no, has a decreasing stake in the status quo. So, you know, in the Clinton years, there was at least some effort to claim that everybody has an interest in the status quo. And that meant a period of balanced budgets, relatively low interest rates, permanent growth and low unemployment. And there was a claim, you know, that uh, that was false even at the time, but less obviously false. That every almost everybody had a stake in it. Everybody's condition was improving, but I think the point about the Obama years, in particular, is just how much changed underneath and how much that connection between the the working class in itself, uh, how how badly it has done during that period and continued to do under Trump. Compared with the professional class. So the, res- the professional class I think really does basically want a restoration of the status quo ex ante, but the working class doesn't. And I think that's the incoherence that will really come to a head if Biden wins and is a problem because he won't have, he won't have any kind of mandate that ex- explains how that conflict is supposed to be mediated. And so I think there will be a lot of demand for improvement and change. There will be demands for things like better healthcare, more spending on schools, jobs, things like that. I mean, a diffuse. I don't think you know, unlikely to be a very strongly politically articulated one. Mm. But I think that if anything, that the Democratic Party is going to find it's even less coherent on day one than it than it appears from the electoral result. The one thing that I would agree with when it comes to Julius claim or this general claim is that there is just enough discipline within the party elite in the Democratic Party to have made sure that one of their own won the nomination compared with the Republican Party. So the thing that happened in 2016 was everybody, all the people running knew they didn't want Trump to win, but they just couldn't get it together. There was no one with a firm enough hand to steer the different bits, the different candidates and winnow them down and coalesce around one person to deny Trump. But we came very close to a kind of really pure expression of just how weak both parties are because we would have had had Sanders won, and he came reasonably close. You would have had two people who are not members of their party leading the party. I mean, Trump is not in any mm. meaningful mm. sense a Democrat, except having changed his registration to be, you know, except being registered.
3: one. He's not a Democrat.
2: <laughs> He's not a Democrat. Sorry. Trump. Trump is not a Republican in any strong sense. He never held any office, didn't, never paid any dues yeah. in, in the political sense, doesn't owe anybody any favors, isn't signed, you know, didn't go through the same finishing you know, institutions that the parties no, do, didn't do his time. It's a,
3: point, it's a point that's been made. He's a kind of law and order. He's a conservative Democrat of New York, essentially, the law and order Democrat from the 70s and 80s.
2: But I think, right, but I think even just outside the substance of what he is, just what he represents politically is the mirror image of what Sanders would have been, which is that someone who is not part of the party being elected by its membership to lead the party as an open rebuke by the membership of their own party right? And I think, you know, that, that, that in a way is the clearest sign of how weak the connection is between the formal structures of the party and the people they represent. And in that sense, I think they're, equ- they're almost equally incoherent, except for the fact that there is a bit more discipline. I think largely because of Obama, I have trouble seeing who else it could have been who could have orchestrated the agreement, this kind of stitch up, In the weeks before Super Tuesday, to get everyone to kind of step down and line up behind Biden. Um, So,
3: one thing that is. um, So, that's
2: the only source of coherence, I think, yeah.
3: So, one thing where there is a degree of kind of uh, contrast and where Trump has made and has broken with um, what would have been Republican orthodoxy for a while is in foreign policy. Yeah. Um, so, and indeed, it was an important part of his pitch. Originally, it was kind of um, general, general suspicion, casting aspersion on uh, the failure of American foreign policy, being uh, taken for a ride by allies, um, the kind of restructuring NAFTA, all of this. So, what are the? Uh, could you kind of briefly summarise the contrasting foreign policy visions of the two candidates for us?
2: Yeah. So. I think that um, I thought a lot about this question of Trump's foreign policy because initially what I thought was Trump was a radical break with the Republican Party radical. He was a significant break with the foreign policy of the Republican Party because he refused to make militarism and sustained attempts to use American military power abroad to kind of bully everyone into acquiescence. He refused to make that the main instrument of American foreign policy. And he switched to basically economic policy as a tool of geopolitics. I mean, it is clear, you know, trade wars, tariffs, immigration policy, these were all of a piece and they were all um, something that drove the Republican establishment nuts, although nuts despite the fact that behind the scenes everyone knew that there was a way in which Trump was correct, which is that America's main conflict is with China. It isn't with you know, what's happening in the Middle East or even with necessarily Europe, um, that the rising power is China, isn't that who we're supposed to be in conflict with. But, but it nonetheless was a departure from the standard kind of tools of, of American foreign policy. And it was um, jarring. But what's striking about it was how effective he has been at redefining the coordinates of American foreign policy. It is now entirely Biden's taken over the language of being hostile to China, of wanting a more protectionist foreign policy, of of wanting to use basically the same tools as Trump in terms of a more nationalist kind of set of tariffs and protectionist measures to protect American jobs and to use it to discipline China. So... That's a, so initially, I thought that not only was Trump kind of revolutionary in, in that sense, that it was a break from Republican foreign policy, but that, that it was revolutionary because he's actually succeeded in changing the debate. I mean, it was striking how quickly major foreign policy think tanks in DC basically started saying, well, it's true, actually. Why have we been fighting these weird wars in the Middle East? What was the point of those? They weren't really serving international interests. They overextended us, created mass, you know, weakened us. But the thing about it is that the the, the only revision I'd make to that is that I think that the first revolution in American foreign policy was George W. Bush, actually. I mean, I think the neocons, what was striking about the neocons was their readiness to kind of lead a public that really... Didn't want to go there, but was ready. Ended up accepting it. Was to basically engage in multiple land invasions using American soldiers. I mean, that was a that was a pretty big break from American foreign policy post Vietnam. You know, the post Vietnam American foreign policy was to try and reestablish American moral authority, but not by actually engaging in the kind of risky commitment of American soldiers and you know massive land invasions that then involved us in managing and trying to reconstitute whole state structures. Um, And it was, yeah, it was delusional of the neocons to think we could do it. All we could ever export was state failure, not new democratic states. But that was already a kind of rupture with the past um, and with the kind of, and, and Obama's role, the reason he gets that ridiculous Nobel prize was to somehow try to pretend like none of it had happened and return to the new normal and do things like, you know, the much more strategic humanitarian interventions. But um, I think the thing is that sort of um, post-Cold War American foreign policy has basically lurched and been unsure what it's supposed to be about anyway, since there hasn't been a structuring ideological conflict. And so I think that's why Trump had a kind of freer hand. He could tap. Major national, dis, you know, domestic discontent with the wars and could advertise himself as the peace candidate. I mean, it's shocking, but he can run to the left of Biden on the war and yeah. on military intervention, um, so, uh, which is a truly astonishing thing to consider, uh, yeah. especially after W, right? Especially yeah. after the whole Republican Party was the party of major land
1: invasions in the Middle East and Central and, Asia. Yeah. Trump, uh, junking that. some of that tradition um but i guess maybe to move on to the election itself or what you might say if you wanted to get your political science hat on some exogenous variables um and their effect on voting on turnout patterns and things like this do you think this will be (laughs) remembered as the blm vote the the covid election the the mail-in fraud election um who do you think which groups might be mobilized or or dissuaded from voting entirely by some of these i guess you would say contextual factors uh i mean the only thing
2: i'm confident in saying is that the politics of coronavirus have dominated the election now that it both in the sense that i think it's the principal reason why Trump will lose if he loses, but it's also the reason why there's going to be these massive, if there are these massive election controversies, why they exist. I mean, it exposed the incredibly weak commitment to actual democratic politics among the Democratic Party Mm. when they very quickly and swiftly agreed to move all kinds of democratic primaries and to make a major push for mail-in voting all the while announcing and to retreat from, you know, canvassing and in-person electoral the standard tools of democratic politics, which is in-person voting and canvassing, right. At a time when everybody's at home. I mean, when you ha- canvassing will be uniquely effect would have been uniquely effective this year because so many more people are at home than normally are. And yet they really retreated from that. And so they've at once kind of, um, heavily contributed to the chaos that could happen. I I don't I don't have any confidence in in being able to predict what whether there will be or not. I think the most likely thing is that if there is chaos it will be entirely judicial. The Republicans and Democrats are going to fight all over the place over which ballot should be counted. It will be determined by the courts and they will all abide by the decision of the courts. That's that's it. I think that's what's going to happen. I do not, I do not see any scenario where the, the courts, all the way up to the Supreme Court, decide which ballots are counted and those are counted, and Trump continues to refuse to respect the election results. I don't believe that.
1: So um, the, the courts I, are going to have a good, a good election. They're going to get some... They're going to, get, they're going to have a
2: good election because even if it's clear that Trump lost, the Senate hangs in the balance and the Senate races are closer. And the sheer number of mail-in ballots this time around are going to sway. If they might not sway, it might be clear enough who wins the presidency, but it's not going to be clear who's, whether the Democrats or the Republicans are in control of the Senate, I don't think, Or, or at least it's much more likely that there's going to at least have to be judicial determination of which ballots are counted and therefore who wins the Senate races. I think it's quite possible that it'll just be clear on election night that Trump lost and, and that's it. Um, he might still contest it, but I think that above all is the coronavirus election, both in explaining the sense in which Trump just seems defeated and unpopular and why, peop, why that kind of undecided middle is start, has swung towards Biden, why Biden has been subject to much less vigorous public criticism and attention than would happen in a normal election year. But also, then, why there's this potential for massive electoral chaos. Because despite everyone saying, you know, your first question to me was, is this the most important election ever? Um, Lots of people say that. But when they say that, I don't believe them. Because if they did, then they would have demanded that there be canvassing starting in, you know, July. And that whatever minimal risk of spreading coronavirus comes from standing on someone's porch, which is trivial risk as all the science suggests. They actually have said, no, it's better to have mail-in voting despite everybody knowing mm-hmm. early in the summer that this was going to be a problem.
1: Yeah, a you can't, you can't have importance point. and demobilization yeah, in the same way. No. Same They'd right?
2: rather have political demobilization of society than win the election.
3: It's a brilliant point. And I think it you know this point about how corona has actively demobilized society in ways that far exceed what would be justified by the character of the virus and its spread is really yeah. interesting and something we should come back to.
2: I mean, I think one other thing to say is, um, it, we had a chance for this to be the BLM election instead of coronavirus, and that was defeated. I mean, the, the, the greatest thing uh, about the protests, the greatest thing about the protests was that they were a chance to affirm that there's something more important than public health. Uh, you know, People are saying, no, we're gonna go at the time, it was generally consensus view, at least among all the people doing the protesting, that there was a decent chance that lots of people getting together would increase spread, but that it was more important to protest racial injustice, which opened up the possibility of saying there's a number of things that are more important. And we've got to recognize that maybe security isn't the primary all-encompassing absolute principle. And it could have been extended. I mean, it was open even for people, for anti-racists to point out that tools like quarantine and lockdown have historically been instruments for racializing populations and subjecting them to very extreme forms of social control, which in my view is what's actually happening during these lockdowns. Whole populations are being treated as infected and contagious. There's a heavy racial component to that, but nobody wants to talk about that. Uh, But it was available at that moment to start going that direction, but it Eventually there was the kind of beginning of the second wave at the end of the summer that shut things down or really pushed them to the side and COVID took over back over from BLM. And so what I think BLM will end up being for now is, you know, one of the many things that gets fed into the democratic machine. Um, Some figures who, you know, will claim to represent it might get appointed into various positions in office, some planks taken up. You know, you saw it in Biden, Biden went to Wisconsin, made phone calls to um, suddenly blanking on his name, the guy who got shot uh, by the police, you know, these kinds of things. It becomes something to which the Democratic leadership has to pay some kind of tribute, but it's just not going to define it's just not defining anything. Mm, yeah. um, it, yeah. The Republicans are trying to make it much more than the Democrats. That's where the law and order argument comes in. Um and uh, I suspect it's one reason why Trump has some popularity among black men. Um, um, uh, although that, you know, I don't know. I'd have I go to, on, how? Have to... how? Well, because the in in poor the law and order has a kind of appeal in neighborhoods that are really high crime. There right, are okay. yeah, discrete right. neighborhoods that in that the United sense. States where there's a lot of violent crime and i think for some you know obvious reasons he's antipathetic to black women i mean he's you know he i think his support's like 2% or something like that but with black men less so um there's already other sources of conservatism in the black community like everywhere else um it's you know it's also divided like everywhere else um Uh, And voting wise, it's, it's probably the less heterogeneous as a voting block now than it has been, you know, historically, actually. Um, But sorry, it's more heterogeneous now, as a as a group of voters than it has historically been.
0: Um, But yeah, so that's, that's why. Okay, very good. That's real, very interesting. Um, So just before we move on to the last section on uh, some predictions and things to look out for. Uh, what are you going to be doing on election night, Alex? Are you, some hysterical screaming, I hope. Uh, <laughs> in, in that, per- well,
2: I will first have, I'm, I I. have made it a, I am committed to voting in person on election day. I don't like, um, I don't like this thing where you can vote early for like a month ahead of time or people can vote ahead of time. I did it in the primaries with some guilt, but um uh, I don't like it. I think everyone should vote on the same day with a few exceptions, you know, people who absolutely are incapable of voting. That's what mail-in voting, you know, was for. Um, And that instead we should make it vastly easier for people to vote. It should be a national holiday or it should be on a weekend and there should be lots more money spent on making, hiring lots more polling, you know, polls and creating a lot more places for people to to vote and so we should make it vastly easier we should make it a crime for employers to prevent their employees from voting you know and all these things you know like to me but it should be voted on the same day and also i i it's it's, i mean it's a symbolic act of protest on my part but i refuse to um be scared to vote
3: you'll be Um, voting blue no matter who
2: well but that's the thing is i i can't vote for biden so uh i i um I have to figure out what I how I will vote, Uh, but for me, I'm a.
3: You could draw a big penis on the ballot.
2: Yeah, that seems that seems uh, it's already a symbolic. I think they count those. I don't want to make it utterly puerile, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but Uh, yeah, Uh, I I, and 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 the problem is that although I campaigned for Sanders, um, I can't write him in. You know, it's betrayal of those of us who thought he might represent something. More confrontational and vital, um, so quickly after he lost on Super Tuesday. Yeah, absolutely uh, makes it impossible for me to um, vote for him. So maybe I'll write vote for in. one of you. Maybe I'll vote for um, you know Alfa hey, Bunga Bunga. Yeah, I was going to say
1: that. Or you could vote. You could write in not not Bernie and not write Bur- <laughs> a, a detailed explanation of, of maybe
2: why. I should vote. You're not going to vote for B- Bernie as he isn't.
3: How are your Views going down with your colleagues. If your colleagues do feel they desperately need to e- eject Trump from power, how does your ambivalence about the election and your refusal to vote for Biden? How does that go down?
2: I've had a few people yell at me um, or call me names. Um,
3: what kind of names?
2: Um, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> what, what were the ones uh, that hurt
1: the most? You know, tell us. Ones you know, that
2: we Um. They say, well, you know, it culminates, it, let's just say, you know, what were the, that I, you know, that I've just, it's just a vote for Trump, that I, that I'm a racist. Actually, the one that that irritates me, it doesn't hurt the most, irritate irritates me, is that it's white privilege.
3: <laughs> you know, they say it's white
2: privilege, which, which, you know, on one hand is, is ridiculous. But what's interesting <laughs> about that vote is it tells you how expressive the vote is for people who say that, because the largest group of non-voters are poor large predominantly minority voters so oh. if it's a sign of white privilege to not vote then i i, I have trouble understanding what's going on with <laughs> well yeah. the mass of non-voters that, um
0: well, it makes that it makes in fact disguise. people who say that to me usually want to make no effort to try and convince i mean that's the well, and it completely shows up the argument of uh, even those kind of most on the left who would still vote for Biden saying, well, but I'm voting in solidarity with those who will be directly affected as a harm reduction strategy. And it's like, well, but actually a lot of those people who would be affected aren't bothering to vote. So, I mean, in solidarity with them, maybe you yeah. have to abstain. I don't know. Um, I
2: mean, for me, it's, it's not a principled position against voting. I take, I am not in principle against voting. I am kind of in principle against voting and doing nothing else. So the other thing that kind of bothers me about the conversation about who are you voting for is I'm happy to say it. But when people say, when people say, who are you voting for? The one thing I'm most inclined to say is to ask them, what else are you doing? you know, like in the primaries, I was ready to vote for Sanders, but once I decided I was ready to vote for Sanders, I then immediately started campaigning for him. Like, if you think it matters that much, then I can't understand the kind of enormous passivity of doing nothing but else but voting. It seems to me to kind of indicate in some way that you just don't really either don't really believe what you're saying, that it's so vital and important, or um, it's it the real function of the conversation is to try and discipline those who disagree with you.
0: Uh, Let's move on to some predictions. Um, Mm -hmm. First of all, maybe things, anything to look out for, any races in particular uh, other than the presidential uh, race that we should look out for, something that might be indicative of overall trends. So here's a trend that I have been
2: following that I think is extreme, is potentially very indicative, and so far I haven't seen much. Many people paying attention to it, and if you don't live in the U.S., it's not going to leap out to you because we you know, for the listeners who don't follow American politics closely, we have this ridiculous thing called the Electoral College, which means that the president, as people I'm sure know, can lose the popular vote, but win the presidency. Um, Because you only need 200, you get Electoral College votes per state that you win, and you get a certain amount of votes for each state. The more populous states give you more Electoral College votes. So you need to get 271 Electoral College votes to win. And what's happened over the past 20 years is that um, you've seen a shift, and Trump really kind of expressed it vividly, is that the Midwest used to be quite democratic. You could kind of count on this sort of high union density, traditional democratic strongholds like Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin to generally vote blue. I mean, it started to you know weaken. But then there has been this dramatic, shift under Trump, who won these, that's how he won the presidency was he won just enough votes in some of these states to, um, to win most of the Midwest. And that got him the Electoral College. And people think then that the big thing this election is just the question of what the Midwest is. And if your listeners in the UK, the Midwest is a bit like the Northern vote. So um, in that it's, more and more voters in the Midwest refuse to be taken for granted. Um, And I think that if Biden wins in part by winning the Midwest, it will be in part because basically many of these predominantly white voters lent their vote to Trump, much as the um, voters who voted for the Tories lent their vote to the Tories basically for the sake of getting Brexit done. But that it wasn't some enduring commitment. And I think that may be part of what's happening in the, in the Midwest is just a reconsideration. But the deeper thing is one needs to look at what's happened to the South. Um, so for the first time ever, Biden is within a yeah, democratic candidate is within spitting distance in Texas and Georgia um, might very well. It, today there was an article about how Trump campaign may be giving up on North Carolina And it's very, you know, Biden's all but assured of victory in Virginia. And so there's been, there is a realignment happening underneath the surface in American politics in which the distinctiveness of the South is weakening. And um, if it turns out that a Democrat can win Texas, then they don't need the Midwest, they can lose all of the Midwest and win Texas and continue to hold a presidency from here on out. And that will at once intensify some of the problems with the most undemocratic features of the American constitution, namely the electoral college. But will also give the Democrats a reason not to ever have to face it, right? Whereas if Trump wins this presidency, it'll be the third time in 20 years that the Democrats have won the popular vote because they're assured of winning the popular vote. But will have lost the presidency, and so if that does happen, I think Democrats are much more like, likely to mount explicit campaigns to really transform the Constitution. There's already the question about packing the Supreme Court, but the other is the Constitution. But underneath it is a you know a realignment of American politics, um, in which the distinctiveness of the South as a stronghold for sort of conservative Republican politics is weakened, and so I will be looking at the election results quite carefully at senate races like the north carolina senate race the how well the democrat how well biden does in texas and in georgia um, and compare it to results in the midwest both the senators like there's a senate race in michigan but also how well biden does in michigan and if the margins aren't very close i think it's a sign that over the next 5 10 years there really will be some deep deeper shifts in where the source, the social sources and social bases of the Democratic Party are. And it could either lead to the Democratic Party becoming even more passive about its own constituency and its own the constitutional structures that it operates in. If they just think, well, look, now we've got this in the bag because we can win Texas and we can win Electoral College and don't need to do anything with respect to the um, Constitution or whether they now realize that or, or whether they are kind of forced by circumstance to start challenging. Certain structures in the Constitution. So I'm yeah, looking for demographic changes in voting patterns that could su- su- suggest real shifts, as well as how they filter up into results to see if it forces Democrats to challenge things more explicitly, like the Electoral College, or whether it'll make them even more passive. Um, and of course, I hope the latter isn't the case, um, no. but it's quite likely that that it that it happens. Um, The only other thing, really, I think the most interesting question is what will happen with the Supreme Court if Biden wins and they have the Senate, are they really going to be willing to challenge the authority of the Supreme Court? Are they going to be forced to um, be a more small d democratic party than they are normally inclined to be and impose their will as a party on this incredibly undemocratic part of the American Constitution and start excuse me, trying to
0: create new justices and offices to fill.
2: Yeah, interesting. Um, I think
0: we'll have to come back to that question, actually, uh, after the election. Um, But just finally, uh, two things. One, uh, prediction on turnout. Uh, Just for listeners, the turnout of the past four elections have been uh, in order from 2004 uh, forwards, 55%, 57%, 55%, and 55% in a bit. So, you know, basically pretty stable and stable and low turnout. Do you see that changing at all uh, this election? And then actually immediately after that, uh, who's gonna win the election and, and how big? I do
2: not predict dramatic changes in turnout um, in part because uh COVID's made it so weird that I suspect people in states where it's clear that it's who's gonna win that state are gonna be even more inclined not to take the risk of going to the polls. So you could see actually significant declines in turnout yeah. where it's a given what the result is. Whereas in all the toss-up states, you might see a surge in turnout because there's a lot of people who wanna get rid of Trump and meanwhile, a lot of activated voters. There's actually been an increase in the registration of, non, uh, of whites without a college education this time. And nobody quite knows what it means because it appears like it's perhaps a function of the Trump campaign. One, people, people, one thing people forget about 2016 is that underneath Trump is actually was actually a rather more competent get-out-the-vote operation, and they've been canvassing in person and trying to get people to register for weeks, unlike the Democratic Party, or in much more coherent way than the Democratic Party in a way. So there's been this increase, but nobody knows if these new registrants are really Trump- voters who are who are getting ready to vote and turn out at higher numbers or if it's these sort of independent you know whites who maybe went obama trump going to biden now nobody knows so it's it's unclear but it does suggest there might be more turnout in some of these swing states so i i i suspect there won't be a dramatic one we also won't know for a while because it depends on how many mail-in ballots get counted and we know that mail-in ballots get disqualified at far higher rates than normal in-person voting. So what even counts as turnout will be, will be hard to say. Yeah. And then, um, I, I do think that Biden will win the presidency. I do think that Biden's going to win. Um, I'm not I'm Uh, not so sure about it because George
3: George George, George George has money
0: on Trump. Trump. He's actually backing Trump. He's he's invested huge amounts in the Trump campaign quite directly. Political capital and money capital. (laughs) But (laughs) George, to make money on that investment, you simply need the odds of
2: Trump. I don't know at what odds you put your money in, but just cash out. Well, when the odds increase, I think over, I think now it's probably a low point, but who, who knows? I think the odds of Trump will
1: probably go, Trump winning. Yeah. Will go so up I should have, I put it, I, I put the money weeks. on at, at the wrong time. This was like the end of last year. And, um, that's when it looked, you know, it looked pretty, pretty in the balance. And now it's before coronavirus. Yeah. <laughs> now the, the odds. <laughs> wow. You're really, you My were,
0: were a <laughs> long
2: Trump for quite. Yeah. Well, yeah. You might so want to save yourself. Yeah.
0: I, I, or I double down my... now's the time to buy trump actually looking at the way the polls are exactly so exactly do no, double so, down after double bad. down George. <laughs> <laughs>
1: no but I, I think i think it's going to be closer than people than people think i think the the polls as sure. we all know are not a reflection of reality but an attempt to to create it artifacts not facts and you know i mean mm-hmm. it does seem from the i agree the the lamestream media that Biden's going to win, but I think um, I'm not cashing out just yet, <laughs> Phil. I'm sticking in till till the uh, results announced, Phil.
3: Yeah, I'm torn. I suppose I suppose I've uh, I've um, collapsed uh, to uh, obey the orders of the mainstream media and assume that Biden will win as per the polls. As such, you know the distance now is so great that even if they end up being closer on the night it's still kind of a, a significant, you know, it's still kind of a strong enough victory for Biden to pull through and the Senate races as well. You know, I've been keeping a lazy eye on them and it looks like the Democrats might win the Senate. So um, I suppose my prediction would be this, that um, if it's on the model of the Tories here in the UK, that the Democrats pull home a remarkable kind of majority in the Senate and a remarkable kind of popular mandate and majority in the electoral college, they will nonetheless be unable to do anything with that political authority at the first kind of sign of trouble. Yeah. And this is essentially what happened. You know, the Tories integrated over Corona and they've collapsed into all the kind of the Remainer state, um, technocracy, all the things that they were trying to raise themselves above with a genuine democratic mandate and an appeal right. to the working class. And it's just all crumbled in a matter of months. And I imagine something similar kind of dynamics will express themselves in the US. And I think, um, I think the Macron parallel is a very good one. I mean, yeah. who knows? God, uh, imagine if there was gilets jean protest in the US.
0: Right. indeed, I think, yeah, I agree. I, I agree with everything that Phil said. I imagine it will be a, a blue wave uh, with all the flotsam and jetsam that that uh, brings in. All right, that's it for now. Uh, that's our pre-election show. We are back with a post-election roundup looking in more depth at what this all means. Uh, that will be in the week after the election. Thanks again so much to Alex. And that's it for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye. My pleasure.
3: Alex, Alex was thanking himself there. Alex, so I was thanking. That was thank
0: it. thanks, Alex Hochuli, but also Alex Gurovich. Um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were thanking
2: Alex. Uh, fuck! You need to re-record that or something. No, no, those, those.
3: No, um, Bye, It's those a joke. It's a joke. The possibilities right.
1: for comedy with two people of the same name wow. are, are pretty yeah. staggering. How we laughed. How we laughed. How we laughed. <laughs> How we laugh. <laughs> <laughs>